There's nothing like your podcast selection. The topics and banter make for the complete driving experience. Kind of like Goodyear Auto Service. They offer full service car service. Whatever comes your way, they're ready with a lot of know-how and some friendly tips to help keep you moving. Keep the podcast flowing and your car going with Goodyear Auto Service. For all-around car care, visit GoodyearAutoService.com. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We've probably all seen the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world commercials. Guy goes on great adventures, has great stories to tell, is friends with the rich and famous. He's a fictional character. But here's the thing. There was a guy in the 19th century that would put the most interesting man in the world to shame. His name is Frederick Russell Burnham. He was a world-famous scout uh, that did time, was tutored by some of the great mountain men of the American West, not only scouted in America and took part in the Apache Wars, went over to Africa for some adventures, took part in the Boer Wars that were going on over there in colonial Africa, all the time prospecting for diamonds, oil, gold, you name it. He was doing that on the side as well. Went to the Klondike to do some prospecting there, went to Mexico to go on some adventures and take part in some of the, the hijinks of the Mexican Revolution. Um, and then he also, I mean, he also was friends with some of the most influential men in, in world history. Teddy Roosevelt was a close friend of his. He was friends with some of the big capitalists of the day, friends with Lord Baden-Powell, the founder of the Boy Scout movement. And in fact, uh, as we'll see, Frederick Russell Burnham had a significant amount of influence on the Boy Scout movement. Anyways, lots of stories from this guy. There's a new book out about his life. It's called A Splendid Savage, The Restless Life of Frederick Russell Burnham. The author is Steve Kemper, and I have him on the show today to discuss this guy who's not that many people know about him today, but he lived an amazing life. We're going to talk about his stories. He's a complex character. He's a product of his times, why he went on all these adventures, what was driving him, and what we could possibly learn from him. So without further ado, Steve Kemper, A Splendid Savage. Frederick Russell Burnham. Steve Kemper, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you wrote the biography of what I would, I'm going to go out there and say, this is quite, he's quite truly the mo, like the real life, most interesting man in the world. His name is Frederick Russell Burnham. He was a famous scout prospector. I mean, this guy did it all. Um, and we're going to get into his exploits that he he did during his life. Um, but let's start from the beginning, because his life was interesting from the very beginning. He was born in the Minnesota frontier, and figuratively and literally, he was born in fire. Uh, can you tell us a little about Burnham's early years in the Minnesota frontier and how his experience with the with the Sioux Native Americans in particular formed the foundation for the rest of his life? Sure. He was... Um... He was the son of a preacher man, um, he, who was a very educated guy who took a lot of um, higher education from the East and went to a Winnebago Indian reservation on the Minnesota frontier, and that's where Frederick was born. Um, 
on his timing as as usual was impeccable for trouble um a year and a half after he was born the dakota sioux started a war when a lot of the men were away at our civil war and one of the consequences was that they they attacked burnham's homestead burnham's father was away trying to get some lead to melt down for bullets so Burnham's mother was there with him, and she saw them coming, and she picked him up and ran, and she realized, um, if I keep running with this baby, they'll catch us both and kill us both. So she stuffed him in a shock of green corn stalks and kept running and told him not to move. Next day, she came back. Her homestead was burnt down. Corn stalks are scorched, and she parts them in there. Lying there quietly is her son, Frederick Russell Burnham. So that was his introduction to frontier life and Indian warfare. And uh, beyond that introduction, that initial introduction, did he encounter the Sioux later on in his childhood? Or did he, I guess at one point, his family moved to California? Um, well, the Sioux kicked the, the, the settlers in Minnesota, and it really was a frontier. It was just the, It's just at the edge of the frontier. It was turning into something else by the time Frederick was born. They kicked all the Sioux out and uh, killed some of them, but made the rest go to reservations. So there were no legal Sioux there for uh, Frederick's early childhood, but there were plenty of other Indians around, and he played with them. All the children did, and that's partly where he, he started his interest in woodcraft and Indian ways. And you're right. Then they moved to California because his father got sick, and um, they wanted to go to a, a new place, a warmer place, in hopes that. It would help his health. It didn't. And um, he died when Frederick was 12. So, But Frederick, <laughs> the mother and, and Frederick's younger brother decided to go back to Iowa because they had no means of, of uh, making a living. Fred said at age 12, no, I'm going to stay. I'm, I'm going to be fine on my own here. <laughs> and that's what he did. Yeah, so that that was amazing. Like he he and the reason he stayed behind because he wanted to pay off his mother's debt because like I guess she had to borrow some money to get back to Iowa because their their family was destitute. So here's this twelve year old kid thing, and like I got to take on my family's obligations, and so he started doing these odd jobs around California, and then it ended up traveling around the Southwest, and this is the time when the Southwest was the Wild West. Um, what kind of work did? Frederick do during this time and how did what kind of and what sort of skills did he acquire with the jobs that he did that helped him later on in his career as a scout well he started at age 12 as a messenger for Western Union telegram he delivered telegrams from the the inner city of of the Pueblo and Los Angeles was really small at that time it was less than 10,000 people um, and he did that 16 hours a day riding uh, sending delivering telegrams to ranches and villages outside of the Pueblo. He got tired of that uh, because it was sort of regimented, and he he became a a freelance hunter for um, freighters' camps in the mountains of California. Uh, The freighters were hauling silver and lead bullion from the mines in the mountains of California to Los Angeles, which became the ornaments of the Gilded Age eventually. And those guys uh, who were on the wagons needed to eat and Frederick learned he was a good shot and um, he was a horseman and so he earned a living by hunting for supplying meat to these camps and in the meantime he also met some of the old frontiersmen some of the old Indian fighters from earlier campaigns and began picking their brains about um, how to how to read tracks how to follow a horse how to know what 
the size of someone that you're tracking, the, the, the number in their party, um, how to avoid being um, picked off and killed by someone who is, is looking for you. You know, all these skills you began to pick up as a youth in the Southwest. Yeah, that, that was amazing. He had this great apprenticeship during the Southwest period. And like, it was interesting. Like, did he seek these mountain men out or did he just somehow come across them and he impressed these mountain men and they took him under his wing? Well, my impression is that he sought them out, that um, he, he, he had decided in Minnesota that he wanted to be a scout. He knew that from a, a young age. And the people who were the repositories of this knowledge were, as you can imagine, kind of gruff, rough um, old timers who didn't have a lot of patience for teenagers who wanted to ask a lot of questions. So he basically had to um, hang around until they saw that he was serious and that he had some talent and that they couldn't scare him off. And um, that's how he, that's how he learned. I mean, for, for Burnham scouting was, it was, I suppose romantic in some ways, but Essentially, it was a very hard discipline that you had to practice every day and um, and learn. A, a later a writer later on referred to him as the Paderewski of scouting because he had devoted so much time, discipline, and and work to um to doing the things that he could do out in the wild. Yeah, I mean his training was intense. I mean he was almost like a monastic warrior uh, with some of the like he would make himself like I guess one of the things he did he he'd prick himself with pins so he could with, learn how to withstand pain. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was, he, he thought that scouts, a good scout had to be able to, um, still function when he was exhausted, very thirsty, very hungry, uh, and, and alone for, for long periods of time, which for Burnham, he said that was the hardest part because your mind would start to play tricks on you. You know, you can, as we all know, if you're alone too much, you become weird. So there's a fine line in between um, scouting as and staying alert and scouting as a kind of psych, psychopathology. <laughs> right. And he knew he had to tread that line. And you, you said that his desire to become a scout, it was sort of based on, there were some romantic notions to it, because I guess Burnham, like a lot of young boys growing up in Victorian England and America, like he read and devoured these adventure books um, written at the time. And these are the same books like Teddy Roosevelt wrote, read as a boy, Winston Churchill. Can you tell us a little bit about this adventure genre of Victorian, you know, your Anglo-America, Anglo, Anglo world, I guess we'll say, that uh, inspired yeah. Burnham and a lot of other young men to become adventurers? Yeah, you know, it's a symptom of of both our the expansion west and the early symptoms of its ending, um, because that's when you become nostalgic and romantic about these things. But these books became very, very popular in the 1860s, and most of them were um, um, highly embroidered biographies of, of frontier heroes such as Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, Kit Carson, and this was also the the decade in the the era when dime novels became um, available and, and everywhere and they were they were inexpensive and they were had wide distribution and these were just unbelievable uh, fantasies with uh, the heroes had names like Deadwood Dick and Mustang Sam and, and the, the titles were things like the scalp hunters or um, search for a white buffalo or you know steel coat the Apache terror 
that's how. And of course, the boys can eat this stuff up. I did when I was when I was a kid. I loved those old frontier stories and 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 things. And so, uh, Burnham was reading these as a as a child in Minnesota and thinking, like any kid would, "Wow, I would love to be out there with the Apache Terror and the White Buffalo and Deadwood Dick." And um, so, there's the romantic side of this, and then you get out there and you realize it's it's the Wild West. It's Indians who want to kill you. It's gruff rough manners, trying to scratch a living, most people failing. Um, there's a lot of alcoholism. And none of this stuff appeared in the books. Right. And also the, you know, the, the scouts in the books often appear to be a sort of, and Burnham even talked about this um, in his writings that, you know, as a child, he wrote about these scouts in the Wild West that they just kind of solve things sort of like Sherlock Holmes, right? But he said, actually, it's the job of a scout's really tedious and boring and <laughs> monotonous. Yeah, because you're sitting on a rock waiting and waiting for something to show up or move or uh, reveal itself so that you can report back. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's sort of, um, and you have to stay constantly alert because somebody's looking for you too to move and find out what you're doing um, and the supplies that you have to take. It's all about preparation, patience, um, being able to bear all these, these, um, these hardships and and bring back information that's valuable to uh, to your commander and it's not for everybody. Yeah, Burnham had that drive, and um, you know, speaking of, he's, he read these stories about the Apache Wars. Like Burnham actually got involved in uh, some of the the Apache conflict that was going on during in the Southwest, as well as this feud that I had no idea that exi- that happened during the Wild West that was bigger than the Hatfield and the McCoys. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Burnham's involvement with uh, not only the Apaches, but this uh, family feud that was going on? Sure. You know, this is, it's really, because we, we still haven't even gotten him out of his teen years. Yet. Right. He's still a teenager. <laughs> this is the crazy thing. He's still a teenager and he's, he's done all this stuff. Yeah. Well, the Tonto Basin feud is, uh, it's the bloodiest feud in U.S. history. And it was, um, a range war, essentially, between sheepmen and cattlemen in this isolated part of Arizona, which was the most isolated part of, of America at that time. It was the wildest part. It was the, the last part that was settled. It was the last state led into the Union um, um, because it was so wild. And that's where the Apaches were, too. Um, the Chiricahua and, and the, the, mountain, the White Mountain Apaches, this was their stronghold as well. So it was very volatile. The, the, the Tonto Basin feud and there were two main families and all the men on both sides were killed except for the one last guy who uh, killed the last guy on the other side and got away with it. Um, went to trial twice, but got off because he had good lawyers. He was funded by the wealthy sheepmen. So it's a, and, and Burnham was associated with this. He got sucked into it as everybody did in, in, in central Arizona, because you either were for one side or the other, or you were, you know, you had to, you had to have allies or you were going to get killed. And, uh, Burnham was forced to choose and he did, and he, he was on the wrong side and he was chased a few times, I guess. And, um, there was a price on his head, but he, he got away and lived. So there's that. And then the Apaches, yeah, he, 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 he admired the Apaches very much. They were for him, the, uh, exemplars of, of scouting because they were, they had iron bodies, they had iron wills, and they knew everything about their environment. They could survive in any conditions. They could disappear. Um, as uh, George Crook, who, who was the best fighter against them, he called them the tigers of the human species. 
because they were such great guerrilla fighters. Um, and Berman admired them very much, even though he he fought them. This was one of the things about him. You know, he his attitudes were based upon the perspective from the saddle, not from the armchair. And I, I try to keep that in mind when uh, he's doing some of the things and saying some of the things that, about Native people in his life. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the sort of the contradictions that he had with him. You talk about this, he's a guy filled with contradictions. But like a lot of 19th century Americans, he had these ideas about uh, Natives, Native people, um, and white people, like the superiority of the white race. But at the same time, he like, he respected uh, not only Native Americans, but he went over to Africa. Like he, there's a lot of he admired about um, the Native Africans there um, in colonial, Af- yeah, colonial Africa. But at the same time, he there's like he had this disdain for them as well. Yeah, and this was something shared that it wasn't just him. It was like Winston Churchill, Theodore Roosevelt even had sort of the same uh, attitudes, sort of this mixture of disdain and admiration. Yeah, yeah, Burnham. He he admired. He made strong choices. I mean, he admired the Apaches. Other Indians he did not care for very much. He admired the Apaches because of their military culture and their their absolute devotion to uh, physical fitness, self-reliance, self-discipline, war hunting, camouflage, scouting. Um, other Indians didn't weren't that way, and so he didn't care much for them. And Africa's the same thing. The Endebelli tribe, um, he admired very much because they were, it was a warrior culture. They were incredibly brave. They were incredibly fit, devoted to what, to the mastery of their art, which was war. Um, other tribes, he didn't care for much, but he thought he was on the progressive side of history. So it didn't matter what qualities these, these other peoples had because they were inevitably, in his view, going to be, going to be churned up by the progress of the white race, which was the march of history which was inevitable, and he was glad to be doing his bit to make it happen. So um, he, you know, he was he was a, a he was a racist, but he was also a progressive, and that's um, it's not a contradiction in the minds of people like Roosevelt, Churchill, and Burnham. Right, right. That's I think it's it's a uh, mentality that's really hard for modern Americans uh, to understand. But I think you did a good job explaining the mentality that why they would have that sort of mentality. Um, so yeah, so he, this is his time in the desert Southwest. But what's interesting too, while he's doing all this scouting uh, in the Southwest, he caught gold fever, and this is something that would that would chase him the rest of his life. So how did his scouting and prospecting work in tandem with each other? Uh, that, you know, that's a good question. Um, well, he was always after money as well. I mean, yeah, he's he always, was after, always the... after money. You, you know, oh, he, yeah. he reminded me of Jack London a little bit. Uh. Jack Lennon yeah. was always after money. Like the reason why he wrote all these books was just so he could have money. Yeah. Well, you know, he was up there in the Klondike. I don't, I don't, Burnham doesn't, um, he mentions him, I believe, but I don't know if they actually knew each other when Burnham got up there, but you're right. Burnham, it, he had these, he wanted action and he wanted income. And those, those two things often drew him to frontiers because that's where you could find the action and you might find a, a, a bonanza because you were, one of the first ones in, you know, it hadn't been raked over yet. So, so I think there's, there's that excitement and there's also the risk of course, of both scouting and mining. You're, you're taking a huge risk. You're going into unknown territory. You don't know what you're going to find. You don't know if it's going to be good fortune or failure. Um, both of them require knowledge of landscape 
and being able to read it for signs of what should and shouldn't be there. Um, you have to know how to spot the signs of gold and sil or gold or silver um, if you're going to be a miner, and then you have to be able to track those because uh, usually they appear as what's called float, just uh, loose stones that have flakes of gold or um, veins of silver in them. And then you have to figure out where did this come from. You have to track it back to the vein uh, where it eroded from or the load where it came from and see if, if there really was anything there or if it's just going to be another empty hole. So um, I guess there's, you know, there's, there's some similarities between the two things. Right. So during this time, he started, uh, I guess, was he making his own claims during this time he was scouting the Southwest? Well, they were sort of, you know, he, he did one and then he did the other. He alternated. You know, he would he would need money, so he'd have to go into the into the desert to look for, for things that would give him a paycheck. Sometimes that was as a hunter for mining camps, and sometimes it was as a prospector. And then if a, if a war broke out um, an Apache uprising occurred, he would get himself hired on as, a, as someone who could help do that. And he was still very young when the, the last Apache um, campaigns were held, but he, was, he learned from some of those old scouts for, for Crook uh, and kept mastering and learning and developing that. And that's what he took to Africa with him when he finally felt like the West was getting too hemmed in and he had to go someplace new. Right. And so this, he's done this, like he's like still in his like 20s, right? Like early 20s. What's interesting though, this, this is a guy who was filled with wanderlust, desired action, but the guy still got married. Um, and he was married to the same woman his entire life. Can you tell us a little about uh, his wife, Blanche, and the type of woman she was and like what, why she put up with Burnham? Because it seemed like like she, she, she liked that he was so action oriented and then he he took her on these adventures, but at the same time you could tell in her diary and her letters, like she just wanted to settle down. So why did she stay with Burnham for their entire life? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And the only answer is the, is the completely illogical one love, you know, <laughs> it makes people do <laughs> crazy things. She, they really loved each other. This is a, this is a love story. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, she was. She liked the excitement that she brought to his life. She wanted to travel with him. I don't think she wanted to settle down so much as she just wanted to be with him. And because um, she went with him all over the globe um, in some pretty rough places, and and liked it. And in fact, she got um, impatient in London, just like he did, and said, "I want you to take me to Patagonia. Let's get out of here and go, you know, do something remote." But often Burnham was away because these places were often no place for women or he was at war and that's, that was no place for women at the time. And so she pined for him and, uh, he pined for her too, but it didn't stop him from going. And, um, that's one of the contradictions in him. I think, uh, their letters are filled with longing for each other, romantic love all the way to the, to the end. Um, it's an amazing thing. And they did finally, when, when Burnham was in his sixties, uh, get to start spending their time together. Okay, so he gets married, early 20s, um, decides to fulfill his childhood dream of going to Africa because things in the Wild West were just not wild enough for him. And again, so it seemed like in Africa, Burnham had two things going at the same time. He had this scouting and prospecting going on at the same time. Let's talk about his scouting first. Who was he scouting for and how did he... I think you're going to have to like 
digging deep into colonial African history for us, because this was completely new to me when I read your book. I mean, who was he working for down in um, Southern Africa? Well, it was the British South Af- Africa Company, which had uh, it was a, what they called a chartered company. Um, the British government had had given a charter to the British South Africa Company to settle and mine a vast section of Africa, which is uh, the, these days it's known as Rhodesia and it, it encompasses some of the other countries near Rhodesia, which is now um, Zimbabwe. So. Burnham wanted to go there because this was an exciting new frontier. He wanted to help uh, the the white race progress, and he wanted to make money. He wanted to prospect. Um, Southern Africa had made millionaires of a number of people because of the diamonds that were coming out of um, South Africa and the gold, the, the famous Rand and the famous uh, diamond mines of De Beers. They were, they were booming, and Burnham thought, I want some of that. So he goes over there for that, and just as he reaches – the settlement, and there were only there were only two little forts at the time in this part of Africa. Just as he reaches there, war breaks out with the natives. So instead of becoming a prospector, he has to become a scout. And uh, he and another American and a Canadian were the three main scouts for the settlers, the militia that went to war against this very powerful kingdom of uh, black warriors, the Indabeli tribe. And they won because they had um, a gun that could mow down the natives. Um, it's uh, you know it's one of those things where a few hundred people can dominate thousands because of of artillery, guns, germs, and steel. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out, where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, 
rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, he was, had these skirmishes with the natives, but then he's also, there's these fights and wars with the Boers. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Boer Wars and uh, uh, Burnham's involvement with that? Sure. Let me just, uh, just a little bit more background. He, they won that first war against the natives. Another war broke out against the natives. Uh, the natives rebelled eventually, naturally, to try to take back their land. And then Burnham went to the Klondike. And then when he's in the Klondike, the Boer War broke out in southern Africa. And the British were getting their behinds handed to them by the Boers, who were terrific guerrilla fighters because they knew the landscape. They'd been there for a long time. The British were arrogant. They marched in solid blocks of lines that were easy to mow down. And they had no um, they had no intelligence. They didn't have military intelligence, I mean, um, which in, <laughs> I guess it's sort of the, it's the same thing as intelligence in war, isn't it? You have, you have to have one or you, or you don't have right. the other. And um, so uh, the commander of the British troops, Lord Roberts, heard from one of his um, officers, the best scout I ever had was this American guy named Burnham. And I think he's in the Klondike. Let's see if we can find him. So Lord Roberts sends a telegram and it gets to Skagway. Burnham happens to, he gets it. He comes home and tells Blanche, we're leaving in two hours. I've been appointed chief of scouts for the British army in, in Southern Africa. So that's how he got involved in the Boer War, and that's where he became really famous. Um, he'd, he'd, also, he'd done some exploits before that in the famous events in the Native Wars. But the Boer War is what really brought him to world attention um, and kept him there because he was behind the enemy lines over 100 times. 
he was always doing things that were extraordinary and um and surviving them he got captured he escaped um and then he's blowing up railroads and uh, that sort of thing so he became very well known he was in the london papers a lot that time yeah not just london I mean, it also made its way over to america and the new york times like his exploits would be there too yeah yep he was he was well known but of course america were most americans were far the boars in that war um not the british and um so <laughs> he he was he was well known but he was not um as as appreciated as he was in britain i guess you could say by some people Right. And so for those who aren't familiar with the Boer Wars, the Boers were, I guess, Dutch settlers that had settled there first in Southern Africa. Um, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Right. So it was like they, Europeans they fighting their, Europeans. Yeah, it was it was the white man's war, they called it. And, uh, and of course, a lot of black people had to pay the price for the white man's war, but it was a horrible, horrible war. It was very costly to the British. It was, it was terrifically costly to the Boers, this, who were the, the equivalent of the Apaches in some ways, a small group of mobile guerrilla fighters um, taking on an empire. And um, they held the British at bay for years and years, and the British, boy, it, it drained them. It was, like, it was like their Vietnam. And uh, it also was the beginning of... Um, concentration camps and um of trench warfare um it was things that the 20th century you know adopted and were horrified by in the first world war but it happened first in the boer war right and so i mean yeah uh burnham gained like world fame like i guess after the boer war like like him and his wife they went up to london and like they had to to uh, entertain all these, you know, dignitaries. And I think even like Queen Victoria wanted to meet with them, but like she had to cancel for some reason. Yeah, she got sick and, um, and, and that's why she canceled. But Burnham was awarded the, the Distinguished Service Order, which is the highest medal that a foreigner can receive in Britain. And he received that from King Edward VII because yeah. of his actions in the Boer War. So while this was going on, while he, you know, in between these, uh, uh, I guess, times as scout when he's warring, he's also doing prospecting in Africa. Um, how did his prospecting in Africa turn out, or was that sort of a, a bust? Well, it, I guess it depends how you look at it. He 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 discovered many very wealthy veins of um, and reefs they're called of gold, veins of copper. Um, he, um, a soda, a lake of sodium carbonate that he thought was there were all these things were going to be his fortune he, because they were so fabulously wealthy um, that and he was partners. You know, he, he always he never wanted to just be on the payroll. He wanted to have a percentage because he was an entrepreneur and a risk taker. And then things kept getting in the way. Sometimes another war would crop up so that you couldn't get to the veins or his partners would run out of money and they wouldn't develop the veins or his partners would, would um, screw him. So he couldn't get the money that he, he deserved to get. It, it, it was, it's really incredible how tantalizing so many of these things were that he did the work for and then never cashed in on, but he did do well enough to um, save enough money um, so that his children could be educated and so that he could take care of Blanche for the rest of her life and Blanche's parents and his own mother. So he he sent quite a bit of money back to the U.S. Um, just before the Boer War. Um, he had enough mining interest and land interest to do that. 
um, but he he wasn't fabulously wealthy. He had, he just was keeping his family above poverty. He knew that they would know he they would never have to live in poverty, right. which is not the same thing as being wealthy. Right. But despite kind of being above poverty, he was world famous. Yeah, that was his military stuff, and that but that also made him um, attractive. Because he was successful at finding these these mineral deposits, he was a mineral explorer. He was hired by syndicates um, to explore other places in Africa, the Gold Coast of Africa on the West Coast, which is Ghana. We, we call it Ghana now. He, he led an expedition there that was very successful in terms of gold, but he never saw much money from that at all. And also in British East Africa, which is now Kenya, um, and he found this soda lake, and he also... Um, a lot of um, rich agricultural land, and he saw nothing from either of those things either. <laughs> <laughs> right, so let's kind of do a recap here of, of this guy's life because we've I mean, we haven't we've only skimmed the surface. But so moved okay, almost got burnt by Sioux during the Sioux War in Minnesota. Goes to California as a twelve-year-old boy by himself. Works for Western Union delivering telegrams. Meets mountain men. Gets apprenticed by mountain men during his teenage years. Late teenage years, early 20s, he's taking part in one of the greatest, biggest feuds in American history, fights Apaches, gets married, goes to Africa, um, is a scout in this these native wars uh, um, during this, for this charter company. Uh, then he goes to the Klondike to take part in the gold rush that was going on there. Comes back take, to be a scout for the during the Boer War, and all the while in Africa he is prospecting, buying property, etc. Uh, that's a lot, um, and he became world famous. And this is like by yeah. by the time he's like I guess it's his forties, right? Yeah, I think he's his late thirties in the Boer War. Yeah, yeah, and and what's crazy too? So okay, this guy had some crazy adventures, but during his life, he rubs shoulders with some of the most influential people in the world during the late 19th and 20th century. Uh, who are some of the famous men that Burnham, you know, this humble American scout from the wild West, you know, that who are some of these men that he called friend? Well, I guess the, for starters, it'd be Cecil Rhodes, who um, was the, the main partner in the British South Africa company who had this vision for Southern Africa as a, the next great outpost of, of British civilization. And he became um, friends with, with Rhodes and, and even business partners with Rhodes. They were a lot alike in some ways, you know, risk takers. The odds didn't matter. The vision is what is what mattered. So he knew Rhodes. Um, and he Rhodes knew is when, the guy, is the, the Rhodes scholars named after him, right? That's right. right. Um, he was Rhodes was one of the, the the wealthiest men in the world at the time that Burnham met him. But um, he didn't care much about the trappings of wealth. He was more interested in this vision that he had of of what to do within Africa and how to how to turn it into a this gigantic um, extension of British civilization. He was he's extraordinary. That's what and Rhodesia, of course, was named after Rhodes um, after the after the Native Wars, and then Rhodes funded what became the Rhodes Scholarship because he also um, was interested in preserving some of the ruins that he found in in Africa. Of course, they they didn't believe that white that um, that the natives had built them. They thought that maybe Phoenicians had come down and done it <laughs> in keeping with the racial attitudes of the day. This couldn't possibly be a, a product of native culture. And it was, of course. So he knew Rhodes. Um, he knew Winston Churchill because of um, the Boer War. Um, 
they were shipmates on the way back when Burnham, who had been severely wounded while he was blowing up um, a railroad um, and had to crawl back to British lines with, he cut up the canvas gunpowder sacks and put them on his hands and knees so he could crawl back to the British lines. They were on the same boat back to to Britain. Um, Churchill had just escaped from the Pretoria jail, which was a famous episode in his life. They became friends. Um, he was good friends with H. Ryder Haggard, who was one of the most popular novelists of the day. Um, he wrote things like She and King Solomon's Mines. And, and he said about Burnham, in real life, he's more interesting than any of my heroes of romance, which is quite a compliment. And then, of course, Roosevelt. He met Roosevelt when Roosevelt was, um, Teddy Roosevelt was police commissioner of New York, and they became uh, good friends. Uh, Roosevelt asked him to become a rough rider, but Burnham at the time was on the edge of the Yukon River waiting for the ice to break up so he could go down the river to the gold, so he couldn't do it. And later on, he asked, TR asked Burnham to uh, be one of 18 officers for his um, volunteer corps that was going to go to World War One, but Woodrow Wilson um, vetoed that idea because he didn't want Roosevelt to get any more publicity. So he was very good friends with him all his life. Um, and some of the big capitalists of the day, John Hayes Hammond, the Guggenheims, Harry Payne Whitney, Edward Harriman, the railroad baron. These were people that Burnham was in partnership with um, various times. He he knew a lot of um, well-known people, and they all admired him. Um, T.R., one mutual friend of, of he and T.R. said that Burnham was the only man who could turn TR into a listener, <laughs> which is a pretty high compliment. Yeah, and and I mean, I mean, it's amazing. Like some of the, he sounds like I mean, it's it sounds like a story. Like someone wrote a story, like it's fiction, right from the 19th century. Like you'd see some movie, like The Extraordinary League of Gentlemen. Like this is, but this was like Burnham was like the real life most interesting man in the world. Yeah, and his life was so incredible that some people thought have called him a liar, by the way, um, and have said that he made stuff up. And so this was, of course, you can imagine I'm a reporter. I, it was pretty disturbing to me when I came across these allegations about some of the key events in Burnham's life. So I looked into this pretty hard, and I, I, I must say that I found the evidence thin to non-existent that he was a liar, that he made anything up. He did all this stuff. There. And a lot of it is corroborated by uh, contemporary accounts. Uh, his letters to all sorts of people corroborate things that he was called a liar about. I mean, he, uh, it is extraordinary. It is almost unbelievable that he that he did all these things, but right. he did. Yeah, and uh, he was also friends with Lord Baden Powell, the founder of the Boy Scout movement. And what, this is kind of interesting. Uh, he, Burnham actually had an influence on the scouting program. Um, can you specifically talk about some of the the, the insights or influence that Burnham provided uh, Baden Powell with when he started the scouting program? Yeah, sure. Um, he got to know uh, Baden Powell in in uh, Rhodesia during the Second Matabele War. Um, Baden Powell was an officer assigned there, and uh, the two of them went on at least one long scout together. He Burnham appears in Baden Powell's book about the about the um, uprising. And he was struck by how much Burnham could um, could discern by just looking at what was around him. And this meshed with Baden-Powell's worry that the, um, the boys of Britain were um, losing the masculine values that he associated with an outdoor life, um, self-sufficiency, 
uh, resourcefulness, knowledge of nature, physical toughness, mental toughness. He thought that these things should be preserved, and he wanted to, to um, teach them to boys through some sort of organization. And um, he talked about this with Burnham, and Burnham said that that's a great idea. You, you know, it's, you should do that. And so, eventually, um, as we know, Baden Powell founded the Boy Scouts and other influence, and they they became really good friends. And Baden Powell would, for for decades, would write letters picking Burnham's brain about woodcraft and and how to do things in the woods and how to tell things and read nature and everything. Um, Baden Powell also, by the way, was a, an ardent advocate of scouting in the military, and because he predicted that since the British had turned their backs on scouting, it was going to be disastrous militarily, and that's exactly what happened in the Boer War. Anyway, um, to get back to Burnham, uh, Baden Powell came to Southern Africa with the usual regalia of the British officer, the pith helmet, the red, the red coat. And Burnham said, you need to take that off if we're going scouting because you look like a, a target. <laughs> so he adopted Burnham's stiff-brimmed brown Stetson hat and neckerchief. And, of course, those two things became um, the main emblems of the Boy Scout uniform in later years. There you go. And I kind of wonder, I kind of wonder if the if the motto came from Burnham too. I, I have no proof of it, but um, "Be prepared" was certainly one of Burnham's uh, you know mantras. And I, I wonder if he got that from from Burnham. Yeah, I, I'm curious if that happened too. Um, so yeah, Burnham lived a fascinating life. I'm curious, like, why do so few people know about Burnham today, despite being world famous and all the stuff that he did during his lifetime? Well, that's the vagaries of history and and fame. I, you know, there's there's not a real answer that I've come up with about that. Uh, he he just burned brightly and disappeared. He 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 didn't do anything that was extraordinary that made him stand out as a historical, you know, monumental figure. He just did his job and seemed to be everywhere the action was, and he knew a lot of famous people, but. I don't know. Uh, he 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 definitely. I think he should be at least as well known as Kit Carson, and some of the other famous frontier heroes that we have. I think partly that's that's partly the answer. He he was a scout at a time when those skills were not in demand or valued as much. He came after the myth of the scout. He was the real deal, but he was after it, and so uh, he missed the mythology. Um, I'm just nattering on. I don't no. really know why. That's. I think it's a good theory. I think it's a really good theory. Um, how did Burnham spend his twilight years? I and mean, did he still have that itch for adventure even when he was 60, 70, 80 years old? Yeah, I don't think he ever lost that. He he um, he became wealthy finally. Um, we've we've left out Mexico. By oh, the yeah, way, the, we left the, the out whole, Mexico. Yeah, and, he went down to Mexico. Yeah, he was got mixed up in the Mexican Revolution, and at one point he probably helps. Um, Save President McKinley from being assassinated. Um, that's another, you know. Oh, yeah, he was a bodyguard for yeah. like that big meeting between Diaz and McKinley at Juarez in El Paso. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he did that, but anyway, in his later years, he 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 became a, he, he started looking into oil. He became a partner with um, some wealthy people who trusted him to become a, a scout for oil, and he said, "We need to dig at this place." Basically, it was based almost right outside downtown Los Angeles, and 
I don't know if you've ever seen photos of, of Los Angeles in the, um, the 20s and the 30s, but there are derricks everywhere. You could see them from any place in Los Angeles. And a lot of people had drilled there already. And uh, so his backers said, no, I don't want to do it. And Burnham said, I know it's there. I know it's there. They drilled. It became one of the most productive wells in California, made Burnham a millionaire. And uh, that was in his 60s. Finally, he got his bonanza in his, in his boyhood home. I love the, the symmetry of it. <laughs> <laughs> but he lived to be um he lived to be 86 and he died in bed in his sleep <laughs> which is doesn't seem doesn't seem possible for a man who lived the life that he did you know from scalps on the frontier to the atomic bomb but that's what he did yeah and like even in his in his 70s he almost stayed like a brush with death like there was a car accident that he tumbled down a mountain in the Hollywood Hills yeah he was run off the road and spent um yeah he, the car was pancaked. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't kill the guy. There was, right. He just would not would not die. Um, so, yeah, he survived that, like many other things, and and got married very late in life to his secretary. His wife Blanche died, and uh, he married um, another woman when he was in his um, early eighties. And um, you know, I think his zest for life did never never diminished. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, what was driving Burnham this entire time? I mean, like, was it just like this romance or this just, he just had this itch for novelty? Was it money, fame? I and mean, why did he put himself in these dangerous areas over and over again? Well, I, I guess, you know, the the cheap, simple explanation would, we'd call him an adrenaline junkie these days. He He had to be where the action was. He wanted to be taking risks. He was drawn to frontiers and places of volatile action, uh, he, and um, that's where he thought he felt most alive. I remember, you know, in his memoir, he, he talks about coming under gunfire for the first time when he was ten years old in in California. And most, you know, most of us would think I, don't, I prefer not to have anybody shooting at me ever again. And Barnum says it it, uh, it was thrilling and it influenced my entire career. <laughs> <laughs> so he he had that in him since he was a boy, and also of course income. So he's restless. He's looking for he's looking for historical action, risk. He's looking for prospects. He's looking for money, and uh, it just kept his feet on fire, and he kept moving until he could find satisfaction in all those different areas. I'm curious, uh, Steve, after, you know, researching and writing about uh, Burnham, I mean, is there anything about his life that inspired you to change yours a bit? Like, you know, model your life a little bit after Burnham's? Um, I've been a freelance writer for over 30 years, so I I have that riskiness, I guess. Um, Now, what this really did was allow me to not only revisit my boyhood, but then to think about it and to think about American history in a much more complicated way than I was able to do when I was 10 and riding on the range in my backyard, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it, uh, it gave me deep pleasure to read and, and to write about all these, these mountain men, the Apaches, the soldiers, the prospectors, and the miners, and, <clears throat> but then also to, um, to bring to it a vast, a vast awareness of <laughs> how these things happened and why they happened and what is, which parts of them are appalling, which parts are admirable because it's all America. It's, 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 it's how we got where we are. And if we don't understand that, you know, we're not going to move ahead. I mean, how can Burnham was against immigration and look at him. He went to Africa to start over as an immigrant. Right. Um, 
his parent his his ancestors came to America to start over as immigrants and he and he was against Mexican immigration after growing up in Los Angeles. This makes sense. And then you look at our presidential candidates, you know, two of whom were the sons of immigrants, and they were they were running on an anti-immigration platform. America, these things they keep popping up. Um, the racial stuff, the, the 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 stuff about immigration, the stuff about military might. What should we do? And what is our place in the world? Um, it, it all keeps popping up, and it's very rich, rich material, uh, especially if you if you come to it with some knowledge of what came before. And yeah, you can get that knowledge by by reading about the life of uh, Burnham because <laughs> he, he he lived it all. Mm. Well, Steve, this has been a great discussion. Literally, like, we scratched the surface and we skipped, like, as you said, like we skipped over parts of his life, um, his exploits in the Klondike, uh, in Mexico. Um, so where can people find out more about your book and your work? Well, I have a website. It's uh, net, and there's some information about Burnham in the book there. You can read the um, the prologue to the book on the website. Or you can go to your local bookstore or um, an online bookstore and you can find the book and buy it and read it. I hope that you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Well, Steve Kemper, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Sure has. Thank you. My guest today was Steve Kemper. He's the author of the book, A Splendid Savage, The Restless Life of Frederick Russell Burnham. And you can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And really go out and get it. It is a fascinating story. Um, Some of them are unbelievable, but they all happened. Go check that out on Amazon.com. And for show notes for this show, after you're done listening, check out aom.is slash Kemper. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show and have got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.